You're listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church, a relevant biblical community. For more information, visit houstonsfirst.org. How are y'all doing this morning? All right. Hey, listen, uh, I first want to say uh, thank you to your pastor. Uh, If you are visiting this morning, uh, you have to come back next week. He is a godly, godly, humble man. Uh, In fact, he has been a great brother, big brother in the Lord to me. Uh, When I became a senior pastor seven years ago, I called him. I was a college pastor in Arkansas. Uh, I was a chaplain for the University of Razorbacks football team and baseball team. And um, we have one Razorback fan here somewhere. (laughs) I got two of you. Awesome. Love it. And uh, then I I thought I was going to be a lifelong college pastor. Um, I gave my life to Christ through basketball ministry. I uh, played basketball at East Texas Baptist University. Um, so I thought um, that I was going to be a lifelong college pastor and sports pastor. If, if you have Jesus and a football, baseball, or basketball, you're speaking my language. You put those things together, the Holy Spirit can do something pretty strong. And uh, I was there, and then I was called to be a senior pastor in Phoenix, never been to Phoenix before. Uh, I go out um, for an interview about March at that time. I don't know, it was about 102. And they said, it's just a dry heat. Um, and so we're there, we take the call. Um, while I was there, I, first day in the office, I get to my desk. The pastor before me was about 6'7", 280. And he had a personalized desk made to where it was like a big grown man desk. And I went and sat down and felt like I was in dad's office. I like sat at the table. I was kind of like this. And my legs were just swinging in his office chair. Called Pastor Greg. It's like, I don't know what to do. I have no clue where to start. And uh, here's what he told me that has stuck with me all this time. He said, preach the word and love the people. And doesn't he just show that day in and day out? Preach the word, love the people. You guys are incredibly blessed to have him and his family leading this church. He is a great man of God. My family, um, they're not with me this morning. Uh, I flew, I was teaching at Pine Cove Christian Camp all last week. So my family were going to another week at Pine Cove. So I flew from South Carolina yesterday, landed, and uh, they're not here, but I do have a picture of them. This is my wife. Um, We have been, thank you, yeah, you could applaud. Some of y'all are like, how did he get her? The Lord hears the prayers of a righteous man. And we've been, Pastor Greg said we've been married 12 years. I think it's 13. Uh, my wife's not here, so it really didn't matter what year I say. I'm going to say we married 13 years. Uh, we met uh, in San Francisco. Uh, so I go to East Texas Baptist University, uh, majored in sports medicine. Uh, I go to San Francisco, get my master's of divinity, and then got my doctorate from Kentucky. But I met my wife. Somebody invited her. I was in San Francisco. I was a single man, about 26 years old at this point. All my friends were getting married. And I was in their wedding, I was doing their wedding, and I couldn't understand, because if I'm being honest, sometimes I'd be like, God, I don't get, this dude is ugly, and he is married before me. I don't, I don't understand this, Lord. What is happening? And then, and then, listen, if you are single, let me tell you, God knows what he is doing. He wait on God's timing. It is much better. 26 years old. Not to mention, I'm 26, single, and balding, and I'm thinking, 
It just, I'm, I pass my prying. Someone invites my wife to my birthday party in August. She walks in and I think the Lord is my shepherd. He knows what I need. And, and then August, January, I propose. I believe, see, some Christians like to pray, ask God over after God's already spoken. You like to be sure that you're sure. I, when he told me once I was going to be completely obedient, I don't believe in delayed obedience. So I proposed. We're engaged in January, married in March. Amen. Your boy don't play. Then we were pregnant in June. And I was scared. So we had Balin. Balin is 12 years old. Uh, he is a sports fanatic. None of my kids, uh, they've lived in different states. We had Balin um, in San Francisco. Balin, uh, really sweet, we bought him a Lego children's Bible. And, you know, we bought it from Lifeway, so I knew the doctrine would be just fine. So I didn't go through every page of the book. You buy it, you read it, you put him to bed. One particular night, we go through a page, and he says, Dad, why are these little Lego characters burning in the fire? And I was like, uh, go ask your mom, because I knew we were going to have the talk about heaven and hell talk. And then so we go on a walk, and so let's talk about this. And so I begin to tell him about heaven and hell. Five years old, at this point, uh, he is asking questions like, if God is love, uh, why does he allow people to go to hell? Um, if God is good, why is there suffering? He's asking about the Trinity. How does this work together? And he's five. And then he's asking these deep questions. So he's asking about hell. God, uh, dad, he says, dad, why does God allow people to go to hell? So I said, let's go on a walk, son. So we go on a walk and I begin to just tell him and unpack it. And when I share this with him, he's, I share the gospel. See, son, that we are sinners for all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. And I share the gospel. He's like, so does that mean I'm a sinner? I was like, yeah, trust me, you're a sinner, buddy. <laughs> and then he says, so do I need to ask for forgiveness? I said, yeah, son. And although dad's a pastor, I can't do it for you. It's between you and God. He says, I want to do that right now. Man, it was amazing. Five years old, we get on our knees. And I said, son, repeat after me. It's by, by, faith, by faith through grace that you are saved. P place your faith in Jesus. And then you kind of have the question, right? If you're a parent, you're like, did it really take... Did it really work? Like, is he going to go in the house and just start cleaning dishes? And I'm like, he is saved. <laughs> Here's how I knew it took. About two years later, he came to me and said, Dad, I really like the Houston Astros. And I said, boy, you were saved. You were saved. <laughs> and he's a huge Astros fan. But you begin to see the fruit of the Spirit. And I was able to baptize him. And then we, um, from San Francisco, uh, we moved to Nashville. In Nashville, we had Mamie Caroline, who's to the left of my wife's shoulder. Um, from Nashville, we moved to Arkansas, where I was a college pastor and sports chaplain. We had Hallie. Let me tell you something about Hallie, why her, it's so special. Uh, we had a miscarriage before Hallie. We, my wife was three months pre pregnant, and it was pretty traumatic. Um, we went through time where I was serving the church went through a traumatic miscarriage at three months. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever walked through deep, deep pain, but you begin to ask God why. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, why did, this, why did this happen, God? 
I've been faithful to you. I've, and you ask God why, and there's this pain, and there's this anger that was in me. And the truth is, our friends around us were, were getting pregnant, and we like, oh, awesome, but it, it hurt. Every time somebody celebrated, it was a slap in our face. My wife, as a woman, began to carry this shame. She felt like something, it was her fault, and that something was wrong with her. And we had to walk through this together and didn't have answers from God of why this happened, this traumatic experience. And then we decided, well, let's try again. But we were scared because we didn't want to experience this again. And then we find out she was pregnant, which then we, were, we couldn't celebrate. We didn't celebrate like the entire nine months because we weren't sure if it was going to be. We weren't sure if we can rest. And we named when she was born, we named her Hallie because it comes from the root word hallelujah. And you know what's amazing is that when you, you are in the midst of your pain, it, it's hard to have proper perspective. Man, when you are just hurting and when you are broken, it's hard. You come to church and we sing stuff, but your heart doesn't believe it because when you're walking through pain, your head is saying, God is good, God is love, God is kind, he is protector. But your heart is like, but I don't feel that, if I'm being honest. I don't feel that because my life is in shambles right now. And we walked through that deep, deep pain. Uh, we moved to Phoenix, and then we, we had Fallon, our youngest. He's five now. Now, let me tell you, we, we've moved a lot, and it's not because I haven't been able to keep a job. It's because God has just called us. And I've always lived in such a way to say, God, my life is in your hands. I'll go wherever you want. Send me. Here I am. So my suitcase has always been unpacked, but I leave it open because I belong to him. And so I've, you know, I've got my, my degrees and you get them, put them on your office. But let me tell you why I show you the picture of my family. That is my greatest accomplishment. To be a father. Man, to, to lead your son to Christ or to share with them the characteristics of Jesus Christ. To show them what it means to be a man. And, and, and what it means to, to live with a conviction, not for the culture, but for Christ. To begin, as soon as each child was born, they were laid in my wife's stomach, and I put my hands on them and said, God, please raise them up to be warriors for Jesus Christ. Don't let them be molded by this culture, God. Let them set the culture and not follow it. Mold their hearts at an early age. Help them to fall in love with you. And I pray this, and they probably hate me. I say, God, if any of my kids are sinning, if they think they're getting away with sin, help them not to be able to sleep in peace until they confess their sin. Please, God, please grab their hearts at an early age. I love being a father. I love being able to get my little girl. The other day, my wife went out of town, and typically my wife dresses the girls in the morning, and they'll come out in their sweet little sundress and little sandals to match the dress and a bow tie. Well, this time, Daddy got to dress them, and I was so excited. See, because Daddy's a Jordan shoe collector, and Daddy's been dying to throw some Jordans on my daughter's feet with the little sundress. So... So she came out and I said, baby, come here. Mama's not home. Go put these Jordans on and come back out. And she was so excited. She came out and I, she came out. She's like, I said, oh, my goodness, you are beautiful. I said, girl, you are so pretty. And she's like, stop it, daddy. She's like, no, you're, you're beautiful just like your mama. You're so, and she's like, stop. And I was like, okay. She's like, okay, say it, maybe just a little bit more, daddy. And I spun her around. 
And you can just see as her father is speaking life into her, you can just see her just come to life. God has given fathers a special role. And he has to mothers too. Don't, don't let me, but let me share something with you. He is a great father. And the more we can imitate him to our children and to others, the more people will be able to grasp who he is. Let me tell you why my family is so special. You know, this is home for me. Houston's home. I was born and raised in Pasadena, Texas. I was born and raised in Pasadena by a father who's from Mexico. He left Mexico to escape the life that he was living, drugs, alcoholism, being beaten by his family, by his father. My mother, eighth grade, was going through the same thing. She was being abused sexually, mentally, verbally, physically. So she ran out in eighth grade. My dad ran out in the ninth grade. Eighth grader, ninth grader, ran away from home, had their first child. My father, um, they kept having children. I was the third born. My father was an alcoholic and a, and a drug user. And so I grew up in inner city Houston, uh, South Houston, and I would come home and my father, what I saw from a fatherly figure was a man come home on drugs, drunk and alcoholic, and would beat my mother. Every day, every night, I had to see my father before he went to bed beating my mother. He, if she made a dinner, he would get the plates and throw it against the wall and glass would shatter. As a little boy, all I could think is I cannot wait till I grow up so I can fight my dad on behalf of my mom. What a messed up way to think. But that's the picture I had of a father. So one day my parents separated. Daddy never came around anymore. But inside of me, there was a young boy still dying for the affirmation to have a father. What is it like to have a father put his arms around you? What is it like for a father to tell you what it means to be a young man and what it means how you treat women? What does it mean to be a man of God? What does that stuff mean? Because I was raised by rap lyrics. Seriously, I let the music dictate how I was going to live and behave. And so here I go, parents divorce, separate, daddy is nowhere to be found. He doesn't want to come pick us up for visitation. I feel abandoned. So what I began to do is naturally began to get involved in gang activity because it's the people that gave me attention. I began stealing from stores. I began uh, breaking in different uh, cars. I began doing whatever. Then all of a sudden, by the fifth grade, fifth grade sexual immorality entered my world. I look back, and, and, and my mother, unfortunately, became my father. She became the alcoholic. We were evicted and kicked out of our home every six months to a year because she was a single mom who, who couldn't afford the bills. And so we were kicked out all the time. Mom was drinking, was gone. One day when mom dropped me off somewhere, I was unfortunately uh, sexually abused, abused by a family member. Happened at a very early age and it completely destroyed my sexual identity. By fifth grade, I was involved in sexual morality. I was involved in drinking and drugs. I was incredibly hopeless. I began to play sports. It was the only thing that gave me worth. It was the only thing that made me feel like I had value. So sports became my God. Because it was the only thing that I felt like loved me back, as silly as that sounds. By 18 years old, I moved to College Station, 2001. I made some poor decisions. I was supposed to go play college basketball. I took a gap year because I made poor decisions. Someone threatened to shoot me. I moved to College Station to get away from that threat uh, in College Station. 
Uh, I got involved in so much immorality that I became disgusted with myself. At 18 years old, I was broken. I was drowning in my shame because of the decisions I had made myself. Nobody made them for me. I can blame it on not having a dad. I can blame it on not the best home life. But the truth is, I chose to make poor decisions. I chose that. I sat in the backyard and I looked up to the sky and I, 18, I said, I don't know if you're real. I don't even know if you want me. I am dirty. I am hopeless and I am broken. I need a father. I need one. I said, if you're real, please, please show me something that you can see me. And I just prayed a little dumb prayer. Would you show me a shooting star? Please, God, please. You ever done that? Like, God, if it's you, then make this happen. You know, I remember when I was in middle school, I'd be like, okay, if I make this shot, it's going to be my wife. I'll make, if I make this one, but this is one of those desperate, dumb throw out to God. I sat there for 30 minutes, no shooting star. What I thought that meant was that God doesn't love me. I'm too dirty and he can't use me. You know, what that, you know what that's like, right? You know what it's like to make a bad decision and that, that shame just haunts you, right? Someone just says the word pornography. All of a sudden, <laughs> affair. <laughs> we say that trigger word and the enemy just uses it and you're drowning in your shame. I live that way every day. So when God didn't come through, I thought there's no chance for me to be loved or used by God. I go inside and I attempt suicide at the age of 18. I didn't succeed, but it was a wake-up call. I go to a basketball ministry in Pasadena. They share the gospel. Here's all I say. I don't know if you're real, but if you are, forgive me. Here I am. And I meant it. And I asked them to be my father. And it's like the taste and desire for sin left my mouth. As I get into this life first, it's gonna make more sense to you now. A story I cannot get away from, a story that can resonate with all of us, no matter if you have a story like mine or not, the thing that we can all relate to in this room today is how it feels to be drowning in shame. How it feels to make imperfect decisions and that decision haunts you forever. How it feels to question God's love for you when you're going through difficult, suffering things. My question always was, if, if God was real, why did he allow me to experience the pain I experienced? Luke chapter 15, one of my favorite stories that I have read for years, I, I still wrestle with shame and the lies of the enemy, to be honest with you. I still have to train myself to not believe these things. Luke chapter 15, there's this young man who goes to his father and he has this desire to rebel. He has this desire to do what he wants to do to satisfy the flesh. So he goes to his father and he says, I want my part of the inheritance, which at this point, it was a disgraceful thing to come to the father. It was, might as well have said, I wish you were dead so I can have this stuff. The father gives it to him, which is a great picture of free will that we are not robots, although God is still sovereign, but he gives it to him displaying this free will that God gives us, lets him make his own choices. The scripture says that the son squanders this inheritance in reckless and wild living, spending it on prostitutes, is what the scripture says. 
You can imagine what kind of life he was living. Uh, at one particular point, he gets so tired of the way he's living, he squanders his money. He's a Jewish man. He goes and hires himself out to a Gentile, which is also disgraceful during this time. He's, he's amongst the Gentiles, and he is filled with this shame. He is sitting there, and he's thinking probably this, I am tired of the way I am feeling. I am tired of drowning in my shame. I am tired of this. What do I do with this? What do I do with the poor decision? What do I do with this? I want to be set free. And he gives us a great picture and the story picks up here in verse 17, Luke 15. After his exhaustion from running from his own father, his own sin, verse 17 says this, but when he came to himself, this is another phrase that indicates that he was having a moment of repentance, that he was disgusted with his sin, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger. He is basically saying, I am tired of the way I'm living. I want to go back and be with my father. I miss it. And I'm starving spiritually. I miss it. Verse 18, he doesn't only come to this recollection of, yes, I'm sinful, but he does something about it. He not only realizes I'm tired of living this way, but verse 18 is important because he does something about it. Here's the thing about Christianity that can be dangerous. We have made it very easy for Christians to confess without having to repent. Which is why when, when Christians are stuck in a cycle of sin, he, let me tell you what happens. The enemy, he'll tempt you at your most, most vulnerable area. Think about this for a minute. And you're wondering, is that true? The enemy will always tempt you in the area that you are most vulnerable. That you are most vulnerable. He will tempt you there. Then he will, he will throw out temptation and he will plant a seed in the dark and he will tell you, it's, you deserve this. It's going to be okay. You owe it to yourself. Look at everything that you've been through. And he will, he will make this sin seem great in the moment. But let me tell you what he does. Although the enemy will plant a seed in private, he will shame you in public. He will plant the seed in private and he will produce the fruit in public. We will never get away with sin. And the enemy makes us think we will. So here he is, the fruit of, that he is producing in his own life is saying, I am tired of this. So he begins to confess it. But confession is not enough. He begins to repent. The repentance is the uprooting of the seed that the enemy continues to plant. So if you're in here and you're struggling with any kind of sin and you recognize that it's over and over and over and you can't break away from it, I would have to ask you, have you confessed it? And let me tell you, that is hard because the enemy is, is telling you, don't confess because this is going to happen. Don't confess because this is going to happen. It is so hard to confess our sin to one another. And it's probably why we often don't do it. But the confession and the re repentance is the uprooting of the seed that the enemy has planted. I urge you, please, whatever you are walking through, please confess and repent. Because at the end of the road is destruction and harm. That's where sin leads. And so he says, I, I, am, I will arise and go to my father, and I'm going to say to him, he is preparing his confession speech, but I want you to listen to his confession speech because it has some self, 
harm in there verbally. Listen to what he says. I will go to my father and I will say to him, I have sinned against heaven and before you. At least he recognizes who his sin has hurt. Then he says this, I am no longer worthy. Man, what a statement we believe from the lie of the enemy. When you sin, what does he say? You can't can't serve in the church anymore. When you sin, he's like, if you attend, you're just a hypocrite. But isn't, isn't that kind of what the church is? A bunch of people, imperfect people, that have found the solution to be forgiven. And he's whispering, you are not worthy of this. You are not worthy. You are not worthy. You are not worthy. And so he even says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Why? Because I sinned and my morality doesn't match up to your purity and your holiness. So don't call me son. Call me anything else. I am not worthy to be called your son. I'm just happy to be back in the game. When I graduated from East Texas Baptist University, um, I came back and I worked for Second Baptist Church. Uh, and, and I was a sports pastor, which was amazing that I actually got paid to play sports and organize sports and share Jesus. Incredible job. And then one particular day, there's a pastor by the name of Doug Page there, who was a mentor of mine. And he comes to me and says, hey, um, I feel like you have the call to preach on your life. Have you ever preached? And I was like, no. Do you want to preach? He's like, I guess. And so he's like, all right, here's a Sunday you're going to preach. Get ready. I didn't know what to do. I majored in sports medicine. I didn't know how to prepare a sermon. So here's what I did. All week long, I was terrified. Then I was so terrified, I spent about 40 hours on my knees praying over and over. God, please use me. God, please use me. That was my prayer. God, it was so deep, so deep. (laughs) I get up to preach, 23 years old. 23, 24. I get up. Man, I'm so dependent on God. And I just pour my heart out. I hit my last point. People stand up and begin applauding. Let me just tell you, the applause of man is the worst thing an insecure pastor can receive. And inside, there was a five-year-old little boy who just preached a sermon who was dying for the affirmation of people because he never got it from his father. And to hear this, I didn't know, but I began to float a little bit. Then I thought, well, let me stand up front and let, let, I get to hear how great I did. They can just tell me. So then people came up, you're so good at this. And I was like, oh, praise God. God's so good, isn't he? You know, the fake humble stuff. <laughs> and then the pastor comes back and he says, hey, man, I, you got a call. You, you want to do it again? I was like, yeah, I'll do it again. This time I didn't prepare a sermon on my knees praying. I prepared sermon for the applause of man. I preached for affirmation. Let me tell you what happened. God has a way to humble us, doesn't he? So I get up with a little pastor swag, thought I was bad. 23 years old, don't walk out, don't judge me. This gets a lot better. And I begin to preach. And I'm like, I can't, I'm not connecting. I'm forgetting my points and my notes in about, I don't know, nine, 10 minutes into it. Nine, 10 minutes. I felt like God said, and it wasn't audible, I felt like God said, shut your mouth, stop preaching, and don't you ever use the pulpit to glorify yourself again. You know how embarrassed I was? I looked back and I recognized God saved me from myself. And in his kindness and in his mercy, he saw a little boy 
that had an idol of affirmation inside and he knew how to kill that idol for me because I didn't even know it existed. But in the moment, I was angry at him. Why did you embarrass me? Isn't it amazing how we do things in disobedience for ourselves and we get mad at him when it didn't work out? It's like he's always the one to blame. But he saved me for myself. I went back to my house. I found a closet. I got in the closet. This time, by the way, I didn't wait up front and be like, hey, tell me how great I did. No, I found the nearest exit. I was out. I got in that closet. Here's what I did. I started, I got on my knees and I started crying because I was filled with shame. I couldn't believe I was humiliated in front of hundreds of people. I can't believe I bombed it. I can't believe I felt like I was finally somebody and I ruined it. I was crying. I was repenting. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for doing that to you, God. It put a healthy fear. I was like, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I said, look, if I never preach again, that's okay. I didn't preach again until about eight years later. And it's like, I felt like God just completely took it away. And here's what I thought. That's okay, because I'm not worthy. I deserve it. I get to seminary, studying Greek and Hebrew. No one's asked me to preach, and I'm ready to use all that stuff because I'm so smart, God's gift, right? Thought the ego was gone. My buddy's, I'm a newlywed. My buddy's like, hey, you want to preach at our church? And I'm like, yeah, my wife's never seen me preach. This is awesome. Yeah, I'd love to preach. I show up. The church has like 4,000 seats in it. And I'm like, whoa, God, you were awesome. You gave me another shot. Oh, thank you so much, God. Then the guy says, yeah, this is where our pastor is going to be preaching. Let me show you where you're going to be preaching. <laughs> and he takes me to the children's room. And uh, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. And it was like, just in case there's some residue of arrogance still there, let me flick it off for you. <laughs> and it worked. I'm so grateful to God. And I'm so grateful. He is such a good God. And if you have tasted of this God, you know what I mean. He is so kind, as Psalm 103 says, that he does not deal with us as our sins deserve. I'm thankful for a God who sees us when nobody else sees us. I'm thankful for a God that when we are drowning in our own shame because of our sin, that even then he has not forsaken us, even though we have forsaken him. That when we run from this God, when we know better and we still make the wrong decision, that we have this God who is still yearning to be close with us. And our relationship with him is not based off of our performance. It's based off of what his son has done on the cross. And he loves us. Man, listen, let me tell you, if any of you are in this room and you are just drowning and there's this sin in your life, let me please tell you this morning, if you don't hear anything else, God sees you, he loves you, and he yearns for you. Stuck in sin, he's not surprised. He loves you, and this son comes back. Now, forget my story, forget the story of the prodigal, but listen to the heart of the father that I don't want you to miss. It says, and he arose, in verse 20, and came to his father. Boy, he was still a long way off. Boy, he was still far off. His father saw him and felt compassion on him as if he has been waiting for him to come back. He had this compassion. He yearned for this relationship. And it says the father ran and embraced him and kissed him. Some of this is hard to comprehend because you've never been embraced and kissed by your own father. 
Let me just tell you, the scripture, Jesus gives us a parable, which is a heavenly a story with an earthly meaning so that we can comprehend God's heart for us as his children. That you can be a long way off this morning and you have a father who is yearning to be back with you. And you're thinking, yeah, but you don't know what I have done. And I would tell you, well, then you don't know my God. Because he can cover that for you. So he runs to the father, and the father embraced and kissed him and said to him, Father, I have sinned against you in heaven, and I am no longer worthy. And he's going over his speech again. But in verse 22, it's like the father just said, Shh, shh. Don't even finish that statement. That is not who you are. That is not your failure. It is not your identity. But the father said to his servants, Quick, Bring out the best robe, which was a robe of righteousness. In Isaiah 61, we see this robe of righteousness to, to mean you are, you are made righteous. You are covered. Your sin is covered. Put a ring on his hand, which means the covenant relationship is back where it needs to be. And put his shoes on his feet. He didn't have any shoes on, which represented that he was a, a slave working at this particular time. Uh, when you didn't have shoes, it meant that you really had no home. You had nothing. So he says, put your shoes back on, meaning you belong to me. You are no longer a slave to sin. You were set free. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate The father does not remind him of his sin. Gives him total forgiveness. By the way, in this culture, there was a Jewish custom that if someone were to run away from their parents, Deuteronomy 21, they should have been stoned by the community on his way back. This, this, another ritual called kazazas, they would get this, this, this clay pot, they would break it in front of the son to say, you are cut off from this community, don't ever come back here. So before that happens, the father runs and embraces him, and the father shames himself to cover his shame. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering what's going to happen when I confess my sin, what's going to happen when I open up, what's going to happen when I tell somebody, what's going to happen when I go to God, what's going to happen when you confess and repent, the result is restoration. The result is restoration. In closing, let me me tell you this story. When my son Balin was about, I don't know, three or four years old, we live in Nashville in this apartment, two-bedroom apartment in Nashville. And I get home, and as I get to the door, my wife says, before you come in, I, I got to tell you something. She said, I fell asleep during nap time, and Balin woke up, and he found the Sharpies. And Balin got the Sharpies and began to write all over the walls, and I can't get it off. And she goes, I think we're going to lose our deposit. And so, so I said, okay, let me, let me come down here. So I get in, and I, I can't find Balin. I said, Balin, buddy, you in here? And uh, I try to say it real sweet at first to trick him so he'd come out. <laughs> it didn't work. He knew he was a little sinner, and he's busted. And so he, <laughs> he hid. And I say it again, Balin, where you at, buddy? You in here? My wife's like, my wife is a snitch. She tells on the kids all the time. She's like, <laughs> like I get home, she's tired. I was like, get him and him. So I go to the closet. Balin, you here? And so I kind of take a step back and opens the closet door, pokes his head out. Yes, sir. 
Like, come here, son, let's have a talk, buddy. So he comes out. When he comes out of the closet, he can't even look at me in the eyes. The dude, you can just tell, he's been filled with shame. He's wearing it. His hands are behind his back. And he walks to me. And the closer he gets to me, it's like, it's like he begins to cry. So he comes out and he's like. <laughs> and I'm like, that little dude is so guilty. You don't even hide it well. And he, he's looking down and he's looking down. And he's a little pigeon walking towards me slowly. And then I get on a knee so we can get eye to eye. You know, when you, you talk to your kids, it's good to get eye to eye. Just to let me, let me speak into your soul for a minute. But he won't look at me. He is so filled with shame that he won't look at me. His hands are behind his back and he's looking down. And I said, hey, Balin, trying to look at his eyes like, what happened over here, buddy? He's like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and I just said, buddy, I'm asking you one more time. Like, what happened? I was like, did you do this? He's like, no. I said, did mom do it? He's like, yeah, mom, mom did it. <laughs> and I, I said, Buddy, I need you to be honest with me, son. Daddy's trying to give you an opportunity to confess this. I just need you to tell me the truth. He's looking down and he can't. He just cannot. And I said, let me see your hands. He's like. <laughs> I take his hands. He pulls them out. And he has black Sharpie all over his hands. And so I say, you little sinner, get back to your. No, I'm joking. <laughs> So I look at his hands and they're all marked up and he's still looking down because now he knows he's busted. So I get him by the chin, I pick his head up and I look at him in the eyes. I said, I need you to tell me the truth. Did you do this? He goes, yes, sir. So I looked at him in his eyes, said, son, I love you. And today you're gonna receive grace, but don't do that. So I kissed him on the head got his hands, kissed his dirty little hands, and he ran off. He ran off with incredible joy. You can just see the shame was just completely off him because daddy was home and daddy forgave him. And he no longer had to hide. Let me just tell you something this morning. In order for God to cover your shame, you have to show him your hands and uncover your sin. Uncover it. Stop hiding. Stop running. Uncover it. And live in the freedom that he has called us to live in. He will cover it. I'm not telling you it's going to be perfect, but he will cover it. Our God will cover. He is waiting on you. Father, this morning, And we pray in this room first for the Christians in this room who know you, God, and maybe they're wrestling with sin or they're wrestling with the decision that was made or they're wrestling with this stamp that has been on their life and they cannot get away from the shame. It haunts them. They think about it all the time. They hear trigger words. They are drowning in it and they just feel like they are suffocating. God, Would you help them to be set free? Would you help them to go from hiding from you to hiding in you, God? 
Man, and here is the thing, that sometimes when we confess our sin, we're so afraid about what people are going to say, about how they're gonna view us, about how they're gonna think about us. But let me just remind us today that what man has to say about us does not change what God has planned for us. Do not let the opinion of a man keep you from experiencing the love of God. I pray for those Christians, God. Would you set them free? They know the truth. Help them to run back to the truth and to recognize that you are waiting. And while they're a long way off, you will be waiting. And God, we pray for those in this room that have never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. God, we just pray. Maybe they don't know what it means to be forgiven. Maybe they didn't recognize that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we are in desperate need of a Savior who lived a life that we could never live, who died a death we could never die, who defeated a grave we could never defeat. Therefore, death has lost its sting. So God, we pray for those in this room, as scripture says, that are spiritually dead in their trespasses. But God, being rich in mercy, that I pray this morning that those who do not know you, Father, may come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to be able to walk an aisle just as I did one day to say, here I am, I surrender. Here I am, Father, I surrender. In fact, if that is you this morning, I just wanna encourage you to come to a pastor to say, I surrender. In fact, all eyes closed and head bowed. If that is you this morning, say, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I never have. I didn't know he can love me. I didn't know he'd want me. I'm tired, I surrender. I need this love. I need this embrace of a father, I surrender. If that is you with all eyes closed and head bowed, you just raise your hand and say, that's me, I'm surrendering today. I'm surrendering all the shame, I surrender. Amen, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church. We invite you to worship with us at one of our four locations at The Loop, Cypress, Downtown, or Siena. Follow us on social media or visit us online at houstonsfirst.org.